This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Open Table. This is a show which wants to break down barriers. We want to build bridges and weave the fabric of a cohesive society. Have you ever wondered what would have happened if Adam did not eat from that tree? Do you ever think how different religions view what is often referred to as the original sin? Maybe it was not even a sin. I explored this along with many other aspects related to stories of our origin and our creation in a discussion with Haja Hassanain Rajabali and Lincoln Reed in this episode of Open Table. Kia ora and welcome to Open Table. Today I'm joined by Haja Hassanain Rajabali and Lincoln Reed and we'll be talking about stories of our origin. So my first question to both the panelists and feel free to start any one of you is what is our origin? Okay. Um, I think the, you know, going back to the very basics and it's what we are taught, you know, as children right through to, uh, you know, as adults is that we are children uh, of a loving heavenly father or, or God. And, um, and that we are created in his image and he is our spiritual father. And, uh, and when we came to earth, it was a chance for us to, to you know, try and become like him. Um, that in order to return to be with him, essentially, that we had to go through this life to experience things with the body um, and, yeah, kind of make decisions for ourselves so that one day we could return to live with him. And so that origin is that, you know, we once lived with our Heavenly Father in, in a spiritual form. Uh, and that this earth life is a, a chance for us to yeah, experience and, and then one day essentially return to be with him. Thank you, Lincoln. Uh, now go ahead, Hajj. Yeah, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Thank you, Lincoln. That was beautiful. Uh, obviously, our origin is God. Um, nothing originates but from God. For everything that originates must be from one who has no origination one who causes all originations and the one who is the ever living is the only cause of all good causes. And that can be none but God. And therefore we know that our origin is God as my brother Lincoln mentioned. And the fact that God decreed our existence uh, from a merciful being. Uh, and we can establish that very rationally as to why we call him a merciful being, a loving God. We can prove it scientifically, logically, rationally. But by the same token, we know that because of that fact, that we are the manifestation of his mercy. And every creation in the universe, every particle that exists is proof of his mercy. For non-existence is infinitely 
less important than that which exists. And I think that is enough proof uh, of his mercy. And the fact that when he created us, he shaped us in the wombs of our mothers the way he willed. Uh, as uh, Brother Lincoln mentioned, uh, uh, shaped us uh, in his image. In other words, as he willed. He shapes us in the wombs of our mothers as he wills, as the Quran says. And he created us out of his mercy. But one of the ex expressions of that mercy is to put us on this earth through a system of trials and tribulations in order for us to recognize his mercy through the power of negations. And he has also enabled us to succeed in these trials. And he has enabled us to elevate our own existence through these trials and tribulations on this temporal earth. But we were not created for this temporal earth. We were created for an eternal journey a journey of existence that will be far superior to anything we've ever experienced on this earth. But God is so merciful that he wants us to taste this earth first before he actually makes us experience the, the next eternal world. Thank you, Hajj. So I've, I've got a question. You know, often people say that we didn't ask God that we wanted to be created. Or, you know, he didn't give us, we didn't give him the permission to create us or, right. or, or some sort of similar arguments. What do you have to say to that argument? You know, Hajj, you can answer, and then we can go to Lincoln. First of all, the the question is loaded because he didn't ask us implies that we're wiser than God. You know, when you say to the teacher, you didn't ask me how this exam should be. I mean, what kind of a teacher are you? You know, at least you should consult me before before teaching me. You know, how dare you teach me a course before consulting me what you're going to teach me? I mean, this this presupposes the notion that we're we're wiser than God, and that's absurd. A non-existent being, first of all, cannot dictate its own, its own existence, number one. So the notion of being asked is preposterous. There's an implied assumption that we've been ever-existent, and now somehow God has to take our permission to put us in some shape or form, which is absurd, number one. Number two, if the person is complaining that they did not ask God to create them, if you ever want to see a human being's greatest moment of fear is when they're about to die. And if they truly believe that there's no life after death, then they should be the happiest because now they're going back to nothing when they, the way they were. And if you want to see trepidation among atheism, it's when they're about to die because in their thought of being nothing, it is the most um, uh, uncomfortable state of existence because non-existence from existence is more treacherous than in solitary confinement or punishment. So the, the notion of non-existence in the question and to, to say that God, you know, why did God create me uh, is, is so ridiculous. If you really look at it, because every human being that exists, if there's one thing that we love is our own existence. We love our parents because they took care of us. It's not because they're parents. Although we were born of their flesh and blood, but if they cease to take care of us, we tend to lose interest in, in loving them because we are very self-centered in our own ways of preserving our own existence. That's proof in, uh, in itself that our existence is such a great gift that to even embark on asking such a question is truly, truly myopic. Mm. So uh, for God to seek my permission, how? I don't exist. How is he going to ask my permission? 
So I come into existence. Then he asked me for my permission. And then I said, you know what, God, I don't want to exist. So those people are asking the question, let them pray not to exist. And maybe God will take them back to non-existence. And I've always proposed that argument, by the way, to the people. I said, listen, if you're so dissatisfied of God having created you, why don't you pray that he takes you back to where you came from? And everyone says, no, 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 don't do that. I said, no, let's all get together. And in congregation, we'll pray for your non-existence. And they said, no, stop. Stop, don't do that. I said, okay. (laughs) Need I say more? (laughs) Lincoln, do you want to add to what Hutch has said? I I actually completely agree. And I I think from, you know, personal experience, it's if if you live in a world or an organization or a family where you need permission to do everything, nothing gets done. Because we are, going back to that origin question, you know, God has sent us to this earth to, to be tried. And if we had to have permission to do everything, we would never learn to act for ourselves. Mm. And so, you know, acting for ourselves is, or agency, as some people like to call it, is one of the greatest gifts that God's ever given to us because it allows us to act. And, and so if we needed permission to exist or to, you know, to do anything, we don't learn that for ourselves. And, and that would be, you know, completely contrary to God's plan. And, you know, what, I, I remember reading a book once that said um, that as parents, the greatest thing that you can do is, well, the, the act of parenting is um, teaching your kids to act for themselves, essentially. Mm. And, and it is, so the art of parenting is the art of letting go. And, you know, it's, as a parent, I've, I've got four daughters myself and, trying to teach my daughters how to act for themselves out in the world. You know, when we let them go to school, when they grow up and become older, how, how do we know that they're going to be all right? And it is by giving them opportunity to act for themselves. If they had to ask our permission to do everything, then they would never get anything done and they wouldn't achieve anything. And they wouldn't have that satisfaction of saying, I've done this. And, Mm. And that I feel is what, God does for us you know if we are his spirit children and he loves us like my parents love me and you know they got to a point where they had to let me go so that I could do things for myself I would never have experienced that joy that I now have of raising my own children and and so it's this perpetual kind of growth that we go through in life and Mm. so asking for permission to do things yeah I mean Obviously, there's a time and a season for it. And just like in, in, you know, in a work environment as well, when you're starting out in a new job, you often do have to have permission. But you get to a point and, and you do that through making right choices, through doing the right things, that you now have that autonomy or confidence of others to make right decisions for yourself. Mm. So I, I think there is a learning process to go through but we all have to get to that point where we do act for ourselves and are not acted upon by someone else. If I can jump in for a second, too, that's a great point you make. Parenting. Which parent takes permission from their child to send them to kindergarten? You know, you ask your child, yeah, do you give me permission to send you to school? And the child says, well, let me think about it. And then, you know, some kids just don't go to school and they're like teenagers. Why don't you go to school? Well, I never gave my parents permission. What an absurd idea. You know, the parents who are wiser than the children have the best interests for the child. And there are certain things that actually are, are, um, in fact, insulting to take permission from. So, you know, you demand the the onus is on the parent. You say, what what kind of a parent are you that you're taking permission from your toddler? 
you know, to feed them or to, to take them to school. You're wiser than they are. How dare you take permission? In fact, it's insulting to take permission. So imagine God asking for our permission to exist. Now, how ridiculous is that? You're asking a, a, a human being that is so insignificant in knowledge, and you're saying, what do you think? Now, God is so merciful that when you reach a level of maturity, his system, his system is designed in a way where he now gives us permission, where he says, I give you two pathways. You can either be a good human being or you can be a bad human being. The choice is yours. But that's because you've reached maturity. So I'm giving you the permission to choose your own destiny. I think that's brilliant. So we do have levels of permission on a, on a scale, as Lincoln mentioned, at a level where it's it, the, the season, the timing is right. So there are levels of permission, but permission to exist, permission to be a human being. And by the way, just think about it. If we compare ourselves to other creations, the quadrupeds and the bipeds and those who crawl on their bellies, creatures that we ride, creatures that we uh, eat, and then you're asked, which creation do you want to be? And you look at earth and you find this one creation that's the master of all creations on earth. And God has chosen you to be that, not a donkey, not a horse, not a cat. They're all beautiful. They're all magnificent creations. But in comparison to this being that's superior in intelligence, God says, I have chosen you. I have selected you among all my possible creations to represent me in this body. Just think of just that gift alone. Forget what happens to your life. That in itself is, uh, you can never repay that. That gift of God, you can never repay that. Mm. Well, that's a good segue into the next bit that I wanted to talk about because as you mentioned, Hajj, that we are the best of creation and our, our identity goes back to Prophet Adam. So I want to go back to the story of our creation which is the story of Prophet Adam and what the two different scriptures say about it. So Lincoln, do you want to get us started with what do you have in your scripture about Prophet Adam? Yeah, I'll just um, quickly turn to it. So, you know, obviously we have the story of the creation in the Bible, which, you know, teaches us about Adam and Eve and, you know, the, the choice, you know, right from the beginning, we see that opportunity to choose or to make choices for ourselves. And, you know, that, him being able to choose whether to partake of the fruit or not, you know, which again go, goes back right to the beginning. Uh, we can see that in order for us to all exist, he had to make that choice. And sometimes people do have to make hard choices and the consequences that follow, we don't get to decide because they are a consequence of someone's actions. Just like if someone else decided to kill someone, you can't choose that consequence. And, you know, if, we, we believe, uh, one of our articles of faith is that we believe that Adam fell, that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. And, and so that article or, or that, you know, basic principle to me says that, you know, he, he was responsible for his decisions. And because of that decision, they were able to bring children into this world. Uh, into this world. Otherwise, they would have existed in that state of perfectness forever. But um, there's a scripture in the Book of Mormon that it says, um, Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy. And, you know, all things have been done in wisdom for him who knoweth all things. And, and so it, it goes back to that point that we were discussing earlier that, 
you know, the, the wisdom of our heavenly father or God is was designed so that when we came to this earth and right from the beginning that we were to make our own choices and that we had that opportunity to choose between right and wrong so that we could experience joy. And, and that is his, that is his plan for us. And uh, we, you know, our foundational doctrine is of a plan of salvation or a plan of happiness. And that comes through making right choices and that we, we believe that we've been given enough light or truth to make right or to, to know between right and wrong. And so Adam had enough knowledge to choose what was right or wrong from him, given that, you know, he was in communication with God in the Garden of Eden. And obviously in discussion with his wife, Eve, they chose to make that um, or yeah, cho chose to partake of the fruit, which essentially enabled us all to come to earth. And so, yeah, the, I, I, it just goes back to that principle of agency that is so, you know, I think often misunderstood that we, we are free to make our own choices, but there are consequences that are associated to those choices, whether it be right or whether it be wrong. Thank you, Lincoln. Hi, Jasleen. Could you add to that? Yeah, so it's, it's um, you know, what uh, Lincoln has mentioned, there's so much similarity between the Abrahamic faiths with reference to the origin of Adam being the first human being representative of the current human race on earth, the dominant race on earth. You know, were there other humans who look like us that preceded Adam? Possibly, yes but they were of a different kind, of a different trial, of a different nature that God placed on earth. And just as a quick uh, example, you know, when you speak about it from a scientific term, you know, they say, well, how could Adam be the first human being on earth when, you know, earth is four and a half billion years old, humanity is only, let's say, 30, 40,000 years, biblically, Quranically, but we have fossils that go back a million years, mi millions of years, you know, where we have fossils of human remains. And that proves the point that God can place many kinds of creations on earth that resemble each other. And the fact that we resemble each other does not mean that we came from each other. The proof is that the maker is the same. Therefore, there's the resemblance. It's very important to understand that. And God can place on earth any species he wishes. Even scientifically, when we look at speciation, when you study paleontology and uh, you know, fossil remains, you find that speciation still hasn't been cracked. It's very, very difficult. The notion of we all originating from a single cell, from a single particle is very possible, but it does not preclude the fact that the maker could have put many of these particles simultaneously on earth as the root seed of all other creations. It doesn't mean that all creations must come from one creation. Rather, there can be multiple creations where others can pro pro proliferate from. There's no scientific evidence to say that every existent entity that's living has to come from one living entity. Although God says we made all of mankind from one entity. You see? We didn't create you, mankind, except from one self. But the idea of, uh, you know, that's very important. That's important to understand. Now, the, the principle of Adam coming in a garden, and you know, the, the biblical garden calls it Garden of e Eden. Quran calls it just Jannah, this garden. Garden actually, Jannah means uh, it's a garden that has a very paradise-like 
characteristic, but it was definitely not paradise, nor was it a place of bliss. And the reason we know that is that from the Abrahamic understanding of all scriptures, the devil who had rejected the command of God was already condemned when Adam was created and was already placed in the same vicinity of the garden. So we know that that garden that Adam was, even in, in biblical terms, the Garden of Eden, cannot be the same paradise that awaits us in the hereafter. For in the hereafter, no evil elements will be present in that garden. But here in that original garden where Adam and his wife are roaming, the element of evil is present. So we know it's a different kind of garden. It's not the same, first and foremost, to understand. And God says that before he created Adam in the Quran, he announced it to his angelic beings with, you know, uh, with and God said to the angels, inni uh, I'm going to place on earth my representative. The other verses is, we're going to create a human being uh, made out of black mud. Okay, the Quran specifically states the human the Adam was shaped with black mud. He and his wife actually had a dark skin color because you'll find genetically too, from dark skin, you can get light skin, but from light skin, you can never get dark skin. And he says, we, we're putting this being on earth and he's going to represent me. And Satan, who was at that time among the angelic beings, though he was not an angel, according to the Quran, Satan is not an angel. He is a creation made out of intense fire, smokeless, non-combustible fire. But because he worshiped God for such a long period of time, he was given the honor to be among the angelic beings. And therefore the commandments of God towards the angelic beings included him too, since he had that status. And his arrogance showed, and he refused to bow to Adam. So the Quran says that God said, once I blow my spirit into this mud being, he and his wife, that you will all bow in obeisance to this being as proof of the greatness of this creation. And the angelic beings asked in the Quran, why should we bow to this creation when this creation will reject you, will cause bloodshed, will cause all kinds of problems on earth, whereas we worship you, we don't disobey you. Why is this creation better that, than us to the point that we have to bow to it? And there are many reasons Quran addresses. Why not bow to God when Adam is receiving life and his wife? Why, why bow to Adam? And that's another lesson in itself. That when God commands us to do something and to bow to something, it is not what you bow to, but rather it's the commandment of God that you must obey. And the devil had a problem with that. He said, I don't mind bowing to you, but to bow to another mud creature who I think is less than me, I will never do that. And that's the origin of bigotry. The origin of what we call today, the human race is diseased with bigotry, you know, and with, for example, misogyny. One gender looks down on another gender. When God says, I made the two genders as a gift for you, male and female, they're all equal in the eyes of God. But you find one gender dominates the other. One skin color wants to dominate the other. When all are a blessing of God. And the devil was discarded from that position. And God says, my first lesson to all my creations, whether you are a biped human being or an angelic being or a being made of smokeless fire, if you practice bigotry among my creations, I will discard you from, uh, from, my, from my grace and I will condemn you. I think that's a great lesson. So the first lesson to humanity is be humble, be submissive, and don't disregard the creations of God. From the particles to the most complex compounds, honor it.
And I think that's very crucial to understand. So Adam was created and placed in this garden temporarily. And, and the reason he was placed in this garden temporarily was because Adam had a unique characteristic where he did not have childhood. See, all of us have childhood where we are uh, first forming in the wombs of our mothers. So we are feeling that environment pre-earth, you know, it's pre-coming out onto the actual earth. Then when we are born, we learn the environment. Then God is merciful. He gives us roughly 15 years of, to reach a level of independence and maturity. And then from there, now we take on responsibilities and choices. And then God says, up to the age of 40, when you reach 40 years of age, I have an expectation that you will have reached maturity to understand the mission of why I created you. Adam and his wife did not have that luxury, being that they're the first human beings on earth. So God put them in this garden and said, roam about, but don't approach that tree. Now, the tree was a demarcation point. It's really not the tree of knowledge, nor is it the tree of life. From the biblical point of view, I know it, it says it's the tree of knowledge. It's not. It is just a tree of triggering the relationship of God, telling Adam that when you approach the tree, your trial will begin. Your ability to procreate and have children will start. Prior to that, you're like children. You cannot have babies. Just like my brother Lincoln mentioned elegantly, that if Adam did not approach the tree, then the system of procreation and generations would have not have existed, and none of us would have existed. So we know that the approach of Adam towards the tree was actually a merciful act. It was a very good act. It was not a disobedience. Now, you might say, but the Quran even states, don't approach the tree. Actually, if you read the Arabic correctly, it's a warning. What God is saying is, when you approach the tree, but its sentence is put in a strategic way. In other words, be careful. Because as long as you don't approach the tree, your trial will not begin. And there's nothing that will happen to you. And you will remain infallible. There will be no sin for you. But if you approach the tree, certain characteristics will fall into place, such as when you become mature and now you're able to produce sperm and a woman is supposed to have an egg, that now you can have a child. So be careful. When you reach that stage, don't approach the other gender. Otherwise, you may have a pregnancy that you may not want. So God is warning Adam that don't approach the tree. Otherwise, you will be burdened. Don't approach this tree. It wasn't a commandment. We know it was not a commandment because according to the Quran, after Adam approached the tree, he realized his trial had begun. And he realized that the burden was heavy. And the Quran says that Adam and his wife immediately turned to God and said, Our Lord, we are burdened. And if you don't have mercy upon us and protect us, we will fail. And God says, we, we turn to them mercifully, meaning God turned to Adam mercifully and taught him the names and guided him as the first, not only the human being, but as the first prophet. This, by the way, differentiates us from the Christian, Judeo-Christian ideology. That Adam, and of course, Lincoln, you know, I would love to hear your opinion on this from my understanding that Adam is just the first human being, but in Islam, he's not only the first human being, he's the first prophet of God. So he's the first agent of God appointed by God to represent humanity. Okay. And, and when God turns to Adam mercifully, notice Quran says, alayhim. Adam asked for protection and forgiveness. And God turned to him mercifully. Now, if it was a legislative command of not approaching the tree, then Adam should have gone back to the garden because God forgave him. But he never asked to go back to the, to the garden. There is no conversation in any scripture, by the way, all the three Abrahamic faiths. Adam never proposes the idea, okay, God, 
I made a mistake. Give me another chance. Let me go back there and let, let's start all over again. No, it never happened. Because before Adam was created, God already told the angels, I'm going to put on earth my agent. So Adam coming to earth was a divine decree. It wasn't because of Adam's approach to the tree. Please understand that. Adam's approach to the tree simply completed the equation. Okay? And if it was legislated, then Adam had to go back to the garden. But he never does. He never asks for it, nor does God ever propose it. Because that wasn't why he was put on earth. So therefore, in Islamic principles, Adam carries no sin, and no generation carries the sin. The burden of sin is not in Islam. So I, I want to differentiate that. That's the or, when we look at the original sin argument in Islam, there is no original sin in Islam, and, I, and we need. To, we, if we have time, we can discuss that. But uh, I think I've spoken enough. Thank you, Hajj. Lincoln. Do you want to add to that discussion? No, we, I think we, you know, believe very similar things there. That you know, Adam was sent, you know, as a chosen servant. I guess you could say um, that he did become the mouthpiece of the Lord as a prophet on the earth to speak to his children. And, you know, that that was his purpose to, um, you know, begin the human race, if you want to call it that. Um, and that he had that responsibility to teach his children with the things that he had obviously been taught while in the Garden of Eden when he had communion, but that when he partook of that fruit of the tree or committed that first sin, that he distanced himself from God. And, and because no unclean thing can dwell in the presence of God, that was that separation. And so sin is a, a physical separation from God, um, where if we were perfect, then we could still dwell in his, in his presence. And so I, I completely agree um, with that, you know, as a kind of a founding doctrine to what we believe that no, yes, Adam sinned, and, you know, in, in the sense of the word that God told him not to touch the fruit, but he did. And because of that, but it was, it was kind of a, you know, I guess of good or not, not so much right and wrong, but better and best. You know, he could have stayed there forever and lived in that presence, but he wouldn't have been able to, you know, continue in that way. Or we wouldn't have been able to come to earth if he had stayed that way. And so it was for that greater, greater good. Um, I think often in life we go through those situations where it's not so much a, you know, it has to be this way or that way, that sometimes there's two good choices. I, I remember talking to a friend of mine and they were deciding whether to go and get a job or go and return to school to study. And he's like, which one should I do? And uh, it wasn't, I, I said to him, but both of them are good, you know, You'll find happiness in both parts, but he had to make a choice. And, and so it does come down to, again, that ability to act for ourselves. And that act that Adam performed was the first act of agency that, that we know of um, or that is recorded. And, and that is essentially what helps us. But um, I, I kind of misquoted earlier um, the, the article of faith as I was quoting the scripture, not the article, but I, I found it here in it. The second article of faith says, we believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. But because of the, the fall of Adam or that first transgression, we are able to have joy because we can experience this life and we were all able to come to this earth. If I, if I can just jump in, it's a great point uh, you make, um, Lincoln, and, and a lot of these beautiful points. And of course, 
Even the Old Testament states it, even the new, none shall bear the burden of the other. And Quran says, It's actually very merciful, the fact that none shall bear the burden of the other in terms of sin. We may, we may bear the burdens of the misdeeds of our parents financially, uh, you know, uh, from a physical point of view, if our parents were negligent of health, and we may suffer from a disease because of bad environments. But one cannot say that we're going to bear the burden of the misdeeds of our forefathers. So to, to us, though, to, to make it clear, in Islam, the notion of uh, sin, the, the notion of disobedience to God as the, uh, as the origination, of, as the need for humanity to exist, meaning God created a system where Adam had to sin for humanity to, to continue to proliferate, that's where we differ a little bit. Uh, for, from, from the perspective of the Quran, the entire start from the creation of Adam to the day of judgment to eternity, there is no means of negativity towards the positive. So I think that's where we differ. I look at my Christian brethren when I studied Christianity, you know, the whole idea of vicarious atonement through the crucifixion of Christ. And it's axial, axial on the basis of the original sin of Adam, uh, you know, the way I understand it. I say, well, we, we don't agree with that. I, I feel that uh, the approach of the tree to Adam was not a sin at all, but rather it was an advisory commission from God warning him because he's so nascent on earth. He's so nascent in the garden that Adam, if and when you do approach the tree, your trial will begin. So therefore, don't approach it if you can avoid it. But if you already approach it, and God says, but for you to continue your obligation as, as my representative on earth, you have to approach the tree. Because there's no argument ever that God makes in any of the scriptures where God gives an alternative to Adam. That, by the way, if you'd have only stayed a few more hours, a few more days in the garden, I would have changed that rule and boom, you would have been on earth without any need to approach a tree, right? There's no such mention. In fact, the reason... God puts it in the negation, do not approach the tree. It's precisely to let it know that there's no other alternative but to go through that. Mm-hmm. And Islamically, we look at that as, as a mercy of God, giving Adam the choice to originate the trial. But mm-hmm. in the process, because Adam is the first prophet of God, and in Islam, prophets are infallible, meaning prophets do not sin, do not commit mistakes. So therefore, we know that the approach of Adam to the tree as a prophet, is impossible for him to have done it as a mistake. So there are many what we call philosophical, theological arguments that we can stack as proof as to why the approach of Adam towards the tree was not a sin, but rather it was an advisory commission of God, uh, and that the procreation of the human race, as you mentioned, you know, uh, better and best. If we weigh this, uh, it's incredible that the approach of Adam to the tree was the best thing anybody could do. And, and under that premise, it's impossible rationally to, to uh, ascribe any form of sin in that move when it's the best. Thank you. So, so in taking both of your accounts, I think the, the agreement here is that Adam made a choice. So there was a choice and there was agency involved here. So coming back to the whole narrative that comes from both of your faiths, how does this narrative, um, why is this narrative so critical to, to your faiths? Do you want to start off, Lincoln? Yes, I, I think that original concept of, you know, 
that gift of agency, um, which is, you know, our ability to choose between right and wrong or to do, yeah, to do the right thing, um, is essentially what helps us or, or guides us. Because we live by faith, um, or faith is the first principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, you know, again, I, I always go back to the things that I try and teach my children, that faith is things that are hopeful, which can't be seen, or that are not seen. And it's not that they don't exist, it's that we just can't see them right now. And, you know, there's a, a common, um, I guess, parable or, or theme that people teach that, you know, it's like the wind. Even though you can't see the wind, you can see the effects of it. And, and the testimony of so many other people, you know, family members, friends, uh, prophets, apostles, leaders, you know, other church members teach us that these things are true. You know, it's not just one person. It's, it's this collective faith. And so the reason why this I guess this concept of our origin or where we come from is so important and what is taught, you know, in this plan of salvation is that it goes through our whole lives that we are acting in faith and it is faith in Jesus Christ and his atonement and, or whatever that may be for, you know, many different religions. It's that faith in that higher being that created us, that gave us power to live and with that purpose of returning to live with him. And if we have faith in that, then that guides our decisions. It, it, it guides each decision that we each make each day. Um, and uh, one of our prophets, Thomas S. Monson, he, he, I hope I'm quoting this right, but it, he said, decisions determine destiny. And when we make, it, it can seem what, you know, can seem like a very simple choice, um, but that choice has huge um, effects in our lives later on. Um, I, I was attended the funeral of my cousin um, earlier today, actually. Sorry. And while I didn't know him very well, he made some choices in his life that guided him down a path that may not be, I guess, in keeping with the the principles of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he had kind of gone away from that faith throughout his life. And even though he had done that, you know, the, the love that I have for him, even though I've only met him a few times as he lives in another country, the love that I had for him is a result of that faith that I have in this plan. That just because he made some decisions that I don't agree with or that others might not agree with, doesn't to me affect the love that his parents have for him, that his heavenly father has him for him and that I have for him. So that, that love, that compassion, that mercy, uh, as we've spoken about today is really based upon the, the principles of that plan of salvation or that plan of happiness that we have, that we know that we have a loving God who loves us, that has created a plan or this earth for us to come and experience these different trials, tribulations, um, whatever you would like to call it, opportunities. And regardless of how we kind of go through that life, he's still going to love us and, and hopes for us to be able to return to live with him. You know, even again, I refer to my own children. 
regardless of any decisions that they make, I'm not going to stop loving them. You know, they're, they're my daughters. I care for them. They're, they're my everything. And, but there does come a point where I'm going to have to let them choose for themselves, you know, and they will go out and they'll make their own choices. And again, because of that understanding of the plan of happiness that I have, or this, you know, the plan that our heavenly father has for each of us, I know that regardless of where we turn up, he will always love us. He will always do everything he can to help us. And, you know, that's what gives me faith to continue despite everything that's going on. Well, I think, um, you know, you touch on some very important points, um, Lincoln. First and foremost, the notion of faith. Anybody who thinks that faith is wrong, uh, with all due respect, uh, needs to really examine their, their, their mental state. Because anybody who considers a person having faith as a wrong thing is barking up the wrong tree. There's no human being on earth, even the most ardent atheist, who lacks faith. It's absurd. In fact, the human, na- human race gives the most value to the unseen, to that which cannot be seen. I mean, you look at a person you hired to do your investments. The reason you pay him top dollar is because he knows something you don't know because <laughs> you have faith in the investor, right? And then the investor brings you the results and says, yeah, I like this person. I said, but this person didn't have the data to prove it. How did you go in that direction? You didn't see it. Just like the atheist says, well, why are you believing in God? You can't see him. Every human being does things that they cannot see. And that's what brings value to life. In fact, the most valuable thing we possess is the ability to plan something for the unseen. And when it becomes the scene, if it shows the right direction that you chose, that's when you become very wealthy and very respected. So the unseen world is actually the most precious uh, gift of God. And faith resides in that uh, world. So anybody says, oh, you, you're just a faithful person. Say, exactly. My life is, is, is continuously built on faith, but it's not blind faith. I see the presence of God. I see how he does things. I've seen the past. I can prognosticate the future, and therefore I have faith. And that faith is essential. Otherwise, you can't move. So I totally agree with you that any person, and I debate atheists all the time, this notion that, you know, like, you know, Dan Barker says, losing faith in faith. You know, I mean, think about it. how do you lose faith in faith? It's a double negative, meaning when you lose faith in faith, it means you had faith and you can't lose it. So, you know, you cannot have double faith. You know, you cannot have faith in faith. So losing faith in faith implies you still have faith. You just lost it in faith. <laughs> so, you know, let's not go there. It's, 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 it's just uh, what we call circular arguments. I totally agree with that. And when you mention Jesus, peace be upon him, as uh, the representative of God, as a means to salvation, I completely agree with that. Uh, Without a shadow of doubt, I 100% believe that Jesus is the salvation. He's the means to God, 100%. And I believe as a Muslim that Jesus never lied, never committed a sin. He was an infallible being, a perfect human being, as long as he was on this earth. And he is definitely the means to God. What he did, what he did not do, what he said, and what he prevented us and what he encouraged us is the pathway to God, hands down. The differentiator, of course, is that God had sent him as an agency, a very primal agency, one of the five chosen prophets of God to guide humanity. And he's so revered in the Quran. He's one of the most mentioned persons in the Quran besides Abraham. And 
to teach your children that have faith in Christ and follow his way, pray like him, fast like him, live like him, I think is the best gift we can give to our children. So I totally concur on that. And I think uh, the bottom line is going back to the origin, we need to know origination because we're curious human beings. Now, there are two possibilities. Either there was a fiat movement where somebody was created as a particle, they became sentient, they became intelligent, they became this being with intelligence and recognized the purpose and started the transactions. Or the other proposal is that we were particles and then we evolved over billions of years. And then one sparkly moment, there was a human being who had this realization that, wait a minute, I'm a moral being and I'm curious. So now let me go research and find out my purpose in life. Yeah, but my, my great-grandfather was a whale, you know, and my near ancestor was a, a gorilla. So I don't know, you know, I mean, let me, let me go to my great-grandfather and see, you know, what did whales do? You know, what did the dolphins do? Because, you know, we were amphibious before, and now we became semi-terrestrial, and now we're terrestrial, and then we became, you know, biped, and then we became supine, and then we became homo sapiens sapien, and bingo, here we are. So now when I look at my history, I ask the question, so what is my purpose in life? Do I just now participate in the biology of evolutions and just become one more, you know, cog in among the wheels that this, this fantastic accidental soup of the universe that continues to permeate creations in a better way because evolution is very progressive, you know, which is absurd. I mean, if there's a probability, actually the probability is zero for something to come with pure chance. Even Roger Penrose is a mathematical genius. Says the probability of the universe coming out of accidents, pure chance is zero. And it's actually regressive. It's impossible because when you multiply one over a million times one over a million, your resultant set is even smaller. So it's regressive. It's not progressive. So there had to be an agency that managed a progressive growth. So to say that, you know what, my origin was just a, a series of events, you know, in mishaps of evolution and bingo, here we are, you know, wow. So now let me figure out, do I need to be moral? And then people, and then you get people like, uh, you know, um, who come with the argument uh, to say that, well, uh, you know, um, that, that uh, morality is a concoction of the human race. Really? then let's unconcoct it. Let's just get rid of it. Let's make lying a good thing. In fact, let's, let's remove good and bad. No atheist on earth, even atheists who reject God, reject God on the basis that evil exists. <laughs> so they cannot negate evil. And I say, go ahead and negate it. Since it's a concoction of the human race, let's negate evil. How absurd is that idea? So the whole idea of a human being being created at a point where we talk about our father, we talk about the divine decree, sets the precedence that the real purpose of this intelligent being is to be a moral upright being that promotes good and forbids evil. And morality is not pegged in time. It's a timeless entity. It does not evolve. Morality is outside the realm of time. Goodness actually, uh, it's, it's beyond time. So if I say a billion years ago, there was a good person who was charitable, you cannot say, well, evolution could have taken on that a billion years ago, you know, charity was a bad thing. You would never say that because morality is outside of time. And I said, let's be good today so that a trillion years from now, our children are good. You might say, but how do you know it may evolve into something else? We all know morality doesn't change. It's fixed. 
God is fixed. His moral system is fixed. So it's absurd to apply biological terms to morality. And therefore, for God to put us on earth in this moment where Adam wakes up and he realizes his mission and his wife, and there's a starting point, it sets a very clear precedence for the entire human race that the most bottom line common denominator that every human being must talk about, whether you believe in God or in the hereafter or not, is that you have to act morally on earth, even as an atheist. And that begs the question, who put that in place? And why is it in place? And why is it that we always check each other's integrity on the moral foundations, not on monetary foundations, not on strength, not on beauty, not on size, but on merit. And merit is sitting on the foundation of morality, which is so fixed that nobody can manage it, nobody can control it, but a divine being. You want to argue, people like Sam Harris tries to argue this, he, until he turns blue, he makes a fool of himself. Okay. Anybody who goes in that direction is going to make a fool of himself. David Hume made a fool of himself when he said that we evolved in understanding morality. He made a total fool of himself. You cannot, it's ridiculous. Thank you, Hajj. Lincoln, do you want to add anything around that? Because Hajj has kind of answered the, the reason why the, the, the narrative of our origin helps us become better individuals. Did you want to add to that um, point? So I've got my children in the background, so I had to. <laughs> um, but I think one of the key things that, um, you know, that stands out from what uh, has been said is, you know, it, it does come down to those, those principles of faith that guide our decisions that, that we make each day. And, you know, two of the great commandments are that we love God and we love our neighbor. And when we look at that, there's, um, again, there's a scripture in the Book of Mormon, um, if I quickly turn to it, by one of the prophets uh, in there that was also a king and it was their custom to often call uh, their kings who were men of faith. And um, this is one of my favorite scriptures because of the principles that it teaches. And he's teaching his people. It's at the end of his life. And he says, um, behold, I say unto you that because I said unto you that I had spent the days, my days in your service, I do not desire to boast for I've only been in the service of God. And behold, I tell you these things that you may learn wisdom that when you're in the service uh, of your fellow beings, you're only in the service of your God. And in order to serve God, we are to serve each other. And so that faith that we have in God, that who created us and we're created in his image and guides these, you know, like I said, these decisions that we make each day, if we, if he has taught us to serve each other, then that's going to guide every principle we make. And uh, in a recent conference, our, our current prophet, uh, President Nelson, he taught us um, that one of the meanings of Israel is to let God prevail in our lives. And when we consider that comment and, and use that as a, as a motivating force in, in the decisions we make, it makes so many decisions easy. You know, how we treat other people, the, what, what we should do with our lives, um, you know, how we should raise our children, how we should work, you know, or interact with others at work. If we are willing to let God prevail in our lives and we are to be like him and to become like him, then 
those decisions become easy. I should be doing the right thing. I should be, you know, <laughs> worthy or constantly making the right choices because that is my purpose. And so my faith in the origin of where I come from, who I am and where I want to be is determined by that faith that I have a God who knows me as one of his children that loves me despite the choices that I make and will always do everything that he can to help me along that path by giving me a prophet to, as his mouthpiece to guide me, mm. that those decisions will uh, also that knowledge or that insight will help me with the decisions that I make. And I think that's very relevant at the moment with the commotion that's going on in the world with, you know, racism, with gender, with everything else that, you know, these topics that keep popping up, that if we really consider what is most important, that we are to serve or love God and to love our neighbor, and we can do that by serving each other, that those decisions really become non-issues, or as, as President Nelson said, issues become non-issues, mm. you know, decisions become easier to make. And so that that is a, a guiding principle for me that, the, you know, if someone approaches me with a, a topic of debate or, um, you know, in anything at the moment, I just think, how, how would God handle that situation? And if so, what is the best choice that I should make here? And so whether it is a cultural issue, whether it's a political issue, um, I, I don't fear because of the faith that I have. And I know that if I'm trying to do the right thing, that, you know, and, and letting God prevail in my life, that things will turn out all right. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Lincoln. Hi, Tasnane, did you want to add any concluding comments before we finish today's discussion? Um, no, I think um, I think it's all it's been it's been said well. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea that how the stories of our, the story of our origin is so crucial to helping us making the right choices is really the theme that has come out through the entire discussion today. Of course, because if we don't know our origin, then our calculation on on our goals will be uh, misplaced. So it's very important mm -hmm. to understand how the, the before and the after work, you know, when we're talking about the mm. now. So it's very important for us to know origin. And God is merciful. He lets us know, you know, mm. the originator is God. And what was the impetus for the origination? His mercy and love. And we are the, the product of that will of God. And the way he executed that will was to create one set of parents to us. It's interesting when you study the mitochondria, for example, the human race... Our mitochondria is inherited from our mothers only. It's matrilineal. Our fathers don't contribute any genetic matter in our mitochondria. Mitochondria, as you know, is the power cell, the powerhouse of the cell. And it's interesting, it's matrilineal, which enables us now, uh, using the Human Genome Project, for example, to figure out the origin of the human being uh, biologically. And the mitochondrial Eve theory stipulates that we all came from one woman from in Africa. You know, it all points to in that direction that we all actually originated from one woman in Africa. And it makes sense. Now you might ask why, why does God insist that every human being, black, white, brown, yellow, tall, short, white, narrow, comes from one set of parents? Why not many parents? Why not have like 50 Adams, you know, and let them all just 
you know, procreate and proliferate and make a white atom, make, make a black atom and make a brown atom and make a, you know, an Asian atom and, you know, and so on. God says, no, you're all made from one parent. So God is going to hold us liable on judgment day. So none of us can argue that my Adam was better than your Adam. First of all, we're all from the same family. And I think Lincoln mentioned that love thy neighbor. Uh, your neighbor is the same. And if you want to worship God, you have to be kind and caring towards the creation of God. Otherwise, it's impossible to worship God. Impossible. Nobody can dare, you know, whip a human being with injustice and then go to the church or the mosque and pray to God. That's, that's very contradictory. You cannot teach such morals to our children. But people do practice that, you know, the, the double standards. Even in the Quran, God says, I did not give you two tongues. I gave you one tongue. It's interesting. He gave us two eyes, two ears, one tongue. He says, I did not give you two hearts. I gave you one heart. There's a reason for that, that there has to be consistency and honesty. But the fact that we all come from one set of parents as an origin sets that precedence of universality, respect for the human race. And that, that's the bedrock of the human moral system. How well do you deal with each other? Are you, are you forgiving? Are you caring? And God says, I'm, I'm, I'm helping you by letting you know that you all come from one set of parents. You're related. And I think that's so crucial on Judgment Day that God will hold us liable, that you all came from that same, uh, you know, from the same parents. How did you kill each other? Mm. Thank you very much, Haj. I've never thought of that point ever in my life. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Lincoln, for joining us. And uh, inshallah, we will continue with our discussions going forward. You've been listening to Open Table on Plains FM. You can like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Podcasts of this series are available on Spotify, iTunes and the Plains FM website. Open Table has been made possible by the efforts of Lady Khadija Trust with funding provided from the Office of Ethnic Communities. Thank you for listening.